0: Exodus chapter 40, Exodus chapter 40, verse 34, which says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the sons of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day when it was taken up. For throughout all their journeys, the cloud of Yahweh was on the tabernacle by day, and there was fire in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel. Father, teach us your word. And Spirit, give us ears to hear and hearts to receive in Jesus' name. Amen. Well... It's been quite a year. I'm not talking about 2020. I'm talking about the first year of the Exodus, which we have now come to the end of. The Shemot, book of names, book of Exodus as we call it, covers in total 481 years. Chapter 1 spans 400 years. In chapter 1, we see the beginning with the settling of Jacob and his family coming down into Egypt from the land of Canaan. They moved down there in the time of famine to live there with Joseph, who you know is raised up as second over all Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. Exodus chapter one, verse two says, Reuben, Shimon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher, all the persons who came from the loins of Jacob were 70 in number, but Joseph was already in Egypt. Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. So we begin 400 years back, we cross 400 years very quickly, but understand, for a long time, life was good in Goshen, I'm sure they made T-shirts. Life is good T-shirts. Life is good in Goshen. And the people were fruitful there and they multiplied and they grew. It was a sweet place to to harvest and to grow and to plant and to take care of of all their flocks and herds until chapter one, verse eight tells us a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He began that fear-driven campaign of prejudice and persecution and bondage, and life got hard very quickly. Not to be callous to their situation or their plight, but that's life. That's life. It's the way it is. We settle, we get comfortable, we fall into routine. Life is good until hard times strike a scattering blow. Life suddenly is not what we thought it was, not what we expected it to be. I've talked to so many of you through this season and through this year. This has not been the year anyone expected, nor anyone really wanted. Life does that. But you know what hard times do to God's people? I'm talking about those who are trusting, following, listening. Hard times ready us for deliverance from the good life to the promised life. That's what God does. He delivers us out of what we think of as the good life into the life of his promise, into the life that is not just good, but is perfect, is what he desires for us. That's what happened with the newborn church. Same thing. Just as Israel came into Goshen in Egypt and had it good and had it easy until persecution, and now they're being readied to leave Egypt. Same with the early church, it was content to multiply and grow 3,000, 5,000, 10,000 in Jerusalem until the servant Stephen was stoned to death. And we're told in Acts chapter 8, verse 1 on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. You might ask the question why would God allow such a thing to happen to his infant? church listen Acts chapter 8 verse 1 is the beginning of the fulfillment of Acts chapter 1 verse 8 Acts 8 1 fulfills Acts 1 8 Jesus said in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth that's what's going to happen but they settled Jesus said here's the charge here's the mission but they chilled In Jerusalem for a time. Until the persecution came. Persecution is a fire that causes God's people to spread. So if you're having a hard time right now, praise the Lord because God is just helping you spread out. He's releasing us from the good life so that we might be ready for the promised life. Just as the persecution intensified in Egypt, God was preparing his people to depart to the promised life in the promised land. So the persecution rose, but then a baby was born. Exodus chapter two, verse 11, then spans 80 years. So we've covered 400 years the first chapter. Chapter two through 11, 80 more years from the birth of Moses to the divine deliverance of the sons of Israel. And then we come to Exodus chapter 12. And chapters 12 through 40 covers one year, just one year. Three months from Egypt as they journeyed to the Mount of God. Three months there of law receiving and law breaking and law re-receiving. And finally, they would be six months of tabernacle building, one year. After this they're going to spend another full year at Mount Sinai which is all of the book of Leviticus and the first 10 chapters of the book of Numbers. We still are at Sinai that entire time. What are they doing? They're learning how to worship. God doesn't just set right out. Pulls them out of Egypt, takes them through this last year, this tough year, this difficult year that none of them expected. And now He's gonna train them and teach them through the tabernacle how to worship as he prepares them for the rest of their journey, which, by the way, is gonna be a lot longer than they expected. Chapter 40, verse one. Then Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, on the first day of the first month, you shall set up the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. The tabernacle of the tent of meeting. Interesting phrase. It's mishkan o'hel moed. Mishkan Ohel moed, the tabernacle or literally the, tw- the dwelling place of the tent of assembly. Get that, the dwelling place of the tent of assembly. There was, an, a, there was a tent of assembly before. And we've seen this in our studies. Moses set up a tent of meeting outside of the camp and he would go out there to meet with the Lord and to talk to him, pray with the Lord, and anybody could. This is different. This is now the dwelling place of the tent of the assembly. Mishkan o'chel moed. Because the glory of the Lord is gonna come take up residency there. As Shemot comes to an end, we see the promise fulfilled because here, just as Exodus chapter 40 begins, we see the tabernacle finally established, quote, just as the Lord had commanded. Just as the Lord had commanded. They do what was required of them. By the way, I mentioned this Wednesday, but note this. That phrase, just as the Lord had commanded, we see 24 times in the book of Exodus. We see it eight times in this last chapter alone. Actually, 24 times up to this chapter and then eight times in this chapter for a total of 32 times, just as the Lord had commanded. It is such a significant phrase, not just in the Bible, but in our lives Can I just encourage you with something real quick? Side note, in these last days, the challenge will intensify, and the question is, will the Son of Man find faith on the earth? Will we continue to live just as the Lord has commanded, regardless of what society and culture in the world is saying? Because it's getting harder. Talking with a sister this morning, there are Christians who are turning on Christians. There are Christians who are easing up on the truths of God's word, backing down, saying it's not, well, you know, maybe we can just kind of let that, let that lie. Hey, we are here to do just as the Lord has commanded because it's for him and it's about him and our lives are to him. So hold on. Don't back down. Don't, as the Hebrew writer sh- said, shrink back. We are not of those who shrink back. Press on just as the Lord had commanded. So they set up the tabernacle. God is telling Moses here, verse three, you shall place the ark of the testimony there and you shall screen the ark with the veil and you shall bring in the table and arrange what belongs on it. We know that's 12 loaves in two rows of what's called the showbread. And you shall bring in the lampstand and mount its lamps Moreover, you shall set the gold altar of incense before the ark of the testimony and set up the veil for the doorway to the tabernacle. You shall set the altar of burnt offering in front of the doorway of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. You shall set the laver between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. And you shall set up the court all around and hang up the veil for the gateway of the court. Again, walk into the tabernacle for a moment with me. You come to the front of this outer courtyard. Once you pass through that entrance, that screen entrance, you come into the outer courtyard. It's open on top, it's, it's fenced all the way around. And as you come into it, the first thing you see is that bronze altar of sacrifice. Going beyond the bronze altar of sacrifice, you gotta go through sacrifice, you come to the bronze laver of washing where the priest would wash and the high priest would wash before entering into the tabernacle itself, the actual tabernacle, which is the tent inside the courtyard. You enter into that tabernacle and immediately to your left, the first thing you see is that golden altar or the golden lampstand lit up with the seven lamps on it. To the right side, you see the table of showbread with the 12 fresh loaves placed upon it. And then right in front of you, the altar of incense where prayer and incense are offered up before the Lord. And directly behind that or almost attached to it so close is the veil. You go behind and through the veil and you're in the Holy of Holies with the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat on top of it. That's the journey into the tabernacle. That's what the Lord is now telling Moses to set up. Get all this set up. And do you realize that by the time it's said and done through the book of Exodus, we will have read four separate descriptions of the tabernacle and all of its implements, its furnishings, how it's put together, It's precise in detail. We read about it chapters 25 through 31 where God gives the blueprints, exact blueprints. And then we read about it again, chapters 36 through 39 where the Lord details the manufacturing of these things. Then chapter 40, verses 1 through 16 gives the directions for setting it up. Here's how you are to set it up. And then finally, verses 17 through 33 of Exodus 40, it details the actual establishment of the tabernacle. Four times exacting specifications, how it's to be done, how they put it together, how they manufactured it, how they finally set it up. Over and over we keep hearing about this tabernacle, tabernacle, tabernacle. Why is so much space taken up with the biblical treatment of the tabernacle? I hinted at one reason on Wednesday night. I'll give you two reasons. And this is two of of four parts of our study this morning. The first reason that we touched on Wednesday night, we'll just call consecration to the Lord. Consecration to the Lord. Why the tabernacle so exacting, so detailed? Why is this so important? Because the tabernacle is all about the right worship of the Lord. That's the bottom line of the tabernacle. For all the other things that take place there, it is for the worship of God, his way. It's that the people would learn to come before him in worship. The Hebrew pastor even calls the tabernacle, Hebrews 8.5, a copy and shadow of heavenly things. So what happens in the heavens around the throne room of the king? Worship. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come, the worship is perpetual and continual around that throne in heaven. And the tabernacle is a shadowy representation of that true reality. And in this representation now, it's about coming before the Lord and worshiping him as he desires to be worshiped. As he calls for worship, the tabernacle taught the people and ought to teach us as well that worship is not to be entered into lightly. And it is tragic that in the church today, worship is still considered a warm up to the teaching. That as we come together as a fellowship, the first thing on our minds, the first order of preparation, the first desire of gathering ought to be to worship the Lord and worship him right to show up in spirit and in truth, in readiness to come before God. We're talking about the living God. This is not about Pastor Rick. Now, back when I was leading worship, I might have been offended. You know, hey, I did two songs and you weren't even here. But it's not about me. It's not about Josiah. It's not about the worship team. This is about approaching the living God. When the alarm goes off on a Sunday morning, do we say, ah, boy, it's it's gonna be pushing it to be there, that's ah, okay, I, I, I can come, you know. As long as I get there by the time teaching starts, we're cool. The right worship of God, approaching the Father, consecration to the Lord. My friends, I think sometimes we forget that worshiping God is a holy and awesome thing. Regardless of what even is happening on stage, regardless of the musical choices or songs or anything else, the, the worship of God, it's, it's overwhelming and it's what we're called to. And think again about how Jesus expressed it in John 4, 24. How many times we've heard this verse in the last several months, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Now, I understand pretty much worship in truth. I think I get that idea that it's in the truth, that the truth is presented, that we come and it's a genuine way to approach God as he is, to recognize him for who he is and to worship him as he desires. Worship in truth, do it right, do it true, and in the truth of God's very nature. But what about worship in spirit? What does that really mean? We've got the spirit, yes we do. We've got the spirit, how about you, as we shout across to the Baptist church down the street? Who's got the spirit? Well, I went to that church. They had the spirit. What does it mean to worship in spirit? Let's answer that. Look at verse nine. Then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it and shall consecrate it and all its furnishings. We're still in part one. That is consecration to the Lord. Consecrate it and all its furnishings and it shall be Holy, that is set apart for one unique purpose. You shall anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils and consecrate the altar and the altar shall be most holy. You shall anoint the laver and its stand and consecrate it. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the doorway of the tent of meeting. Wash them with water and you shall put the holy garments on Aaron and anoint him and consecrate him that he may minister as a priest to me. You shall bring his sons and put tunics on them, and you shall anoint them even as you have anointed their father, that they may minister as priests to me. And their anointing will qualify them, note this, for a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. Thus Moses did according to all the Lord had commanded him. So he did. Anoint, anoint, anoint. Anoint the tent, anoint the fixtures, anoint the utensils, anoint the altar, anoint the labor. get the priest in there, anoint Aaron, anoint his sons, anoint everything. Everything was smeared with this essential oil. (laughs) This essential oil is made of four rare and costly spices, myrrh, cinnamon, cane, and cassia. And these four spices were specifically and particularly mixed into a gallon of pure olive oil, which I pointed out when we studied that earlier that that's exactly what Les has been looking for his whole life. Not those little vials, but a gallon, man. Dump that bad boy. Anoint people, right? (laughs) Have you ever wondered what anointing is really all about? Why do you anoint people? Someone comes for prayer, you anoint them. Take that little dab, you know. Put it on the forehead. Someone becomes a shepherd, you anoint that person. Someone joins the staff at the bridge, you anoint that person. Someone's sick, they call for the elders, you anoint that person. Listen, get this. Biblically speaking, the physical act of anointing exemplifies the spiritual act of consecration. And I'm gonna explain that even more. But the biblical act of anointing Expresses the spiritual act of consecration. We see the word in verse 9, 10, 11, and 13 consecrate, 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 anoint, anoint, anoint. The anointing is about the consecration. Consecration is kiddashta. And that word kidashta comes from the word kadesh, make holy. Consecration, to consecrate something is to put it into the process of being made holy, being made set apart. Literally, to dedicate or devote. And this begins to, be, to make sense to me that anointing expresses dedication and devotion. That now this one anointed is devoted to God. This utensil anointed is devoted to God. Nothing else. You didn't anoint a snuffer for the lampstand and then one of the priests go, hey, we lost one in our tent so he took it home. No, it was dedicated, devoted to God. The lampstand itself, devoted only to the Lord. You didn't bring it out for a festival. Hey, let's get the lampstand out here. Get some candles. The Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, devoted to God. And we'll see why that's so important later on in the history of Israel, Lord willing. All these things, once anointed, are devoted to God. Now, keep that thought in mind as far as anointing goes and what it portrays and what it signifies. 1 John 2, verse 20, John says, you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. You come to Jesus in faith, you are anointed by the Holy One. What does that mean? Devoted. You are now set apart to God for no other purpose but to belong to him, to be dedicated to him, devoted to him. That's the anointing. John says in 1 John two twenty-seven: as for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. You might say, well, then why are we sitting here being taught by Pastor Rick? <laughs> It says as his anointing teaches you all things and is true and is not a lie just as it has taught you you abide in him anointing it's not some enigmatic magical power oh i got the anointing this morning it's not some kind of mystical insight well now that i've been anointed <laughs> i see everything <laughs> the anointing is dedication it's devotion Devotion, plain and simple. 2 Corinthians 1, 21 and 22 says, listen, now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who also sealed us and gave us the spirit in our hearts as a pledge. Sometimes we confuse those two verses. We say the anointing is the spirit. No, the anointing is the devotion to the spirit of God. The Spirit is given to us. We're anointed with this in this place of or brought into this place of devotion. To be anointed is to be devoted to the God who is devoted to you. I think that's the best way to put it. To be anointed is to be devoted to the God who is devoted to you. By the way, in Jesus Christ, who's called the anointed one, the Mashiach, devoted to the Father, devoted to his people devoted to the work to which Jesus was called, Jesus Christ, Mashiach, the anointed. Now you might say, well, but what about anointing the sick? Same thing. Again, it signifies devotion to the God who does the healing. We are now devoting this vessel, this, this ailing vessel, Lord, we're devoting to you for your healing hand to be on their life. We need to understand this because we miss the power and the potency of anointing if we see it as some kind of weird mystical thing, some fringe element that some churches do, but others go, <laughs> The anointing. And by the way, back when John said, you have no need for anyone to teach you, that's because he's in the context of false teachers, liars, coming along, trying to tell people something means something it doesn't he says no no you already have the anointing you're already devoted to god be devoted to him not to them and i hope you understand very clearly your anointing is not to me you're not devoted to me i mean it's nice to be my friend but your devotion is to the lord jesus christ period that's the picture of being anointed and note this the priest's were anointed for a perpetual priesthood. What does that mean? It means that once they were anointed, they didn't get anointed again. You ever think about that? That once the tabernacle was established, they didn't re-anoint it every time they they stopped and set up camp. Oh, gotta go through the anointing process again and go around and anoint everything and they start anointing all the friends. They didn't do that. Once anointed, it was dedicated Once anointed, it was devoted, that was it, as if the anointing might wear out or wear off. Well, it's been a year and a half since the last time we anointed the altar of incense. Better get that done again, just in case it's worn off. The anointing was just done one time because once it was done, it was devotion. This whatever was anointed is now devoted perpetually to the Lord, and that includes the priest's. It included Aaron and his sons and the priests down the line. Once they were anointed, they were not re-anointed over and over and over. I like how Sarna puts it. He said, the act of anointing consecrates them to divine service. Henceforth, their holiness was contagious. Their holiness was contagious. That is, their holiness was transmissible to all their work and ministry. That once a thing was devoted, it was devoted to ministry and would transmit that ministry whenever it was used, however it was used, or however the priest was to act in service. He was already devoted. So the holiness was contagious. Do you have a contagious devotion to Jesus? Can you say, I am contagiously devoted? I'm so devoted to Jesus that when people are around me, some of that anointing gets on them. Are you the type of person that other believers, when they're with you, feel closer to God because you are so devoted? That's the idea of the anointing. That's why this tabernacle situation is all about worship. Worship in spirit and truth is worship that is about genuine devotion to God the Father and Jesus the Son and his spirit. We're truly devoted. We worship in spirit. Our hearts are in it. It's not an act. It's not a physical thing that we're doing we're not going through the motions no we're devoted in heart consecrated to the lord because he has saved us and washed us and cleansed us and so we are anointed and you have an anointing and you know it consecrated to the lord the second reason for all the repetitious requirements of the tabernacle that we see throughout this chapter and throughout this book Confidence in the Lord. Consecration to the Lord, but confidence in the Lord. What's interesting is the tabernacle doesn't change. From the first list to the last, the details are never revised, adapted, or modified in any way. Once it's set out, it's done. Now, when we built this building, I can't tell you how many times Paul and I had conversations and we tweaked things. It was a work in progress. It was a tweaking upon tweaking. There was one point I'm walking through the what would be the foyer out here in this big empty shell, and as I walked, I looked up there and there's this big space and I said, Could we put offices up there? Paul's like, oh yeah. See, it's easy for the architect. He just draws it up, throws it back in your lap. (laughs) I say easy, I'm kidding. But we added it, and, and as we went, we said, Oh, but we need this. Oh, we could do that. Hey, what about this? And we tweaked and changed. And from the very first iteration of the blueprints of this building to the last, they were very different, with the exception maybe of, out, of the outward shell, not with the tabernacle. One drawing, one set of blueprints, and it never changes, never changes. And that is precisely the point. We serve a God who does not change who is consistent. Life is completely the opposite, life is unreliable. Seasons and storms come and go, cultures and and crises, and circumstances in our lives, they're erratic. You can't count on things to be the same from one day to the next, though we fool ourselves into thinking that tomorrow will be like today. It rarely is, and you might have a week or two that things seem pretty level, but then something's gonna throw it into turmoil, Human history is tumultuous. It's constantly in flux and change. I've heard the phrase before, change is the only constant in this world. I disagree. Jesus Christ is the constant. God is the same. In fact, say it with me, Hebrews thirteen eight. Jesus Christ is the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change. So is there another source of such immutable peace? Is there anywhere else that you can go, anyone else that you can lean on, rely on, to always be the same? By the way, that's not boring because sameness with God is overwhelming. We still haven't come close to figuring out him and his glory and the depths of his glorious, amazing nature, but he's unchanging. And we can count on him. And again, Isaiah 33, 6, a verse we've used many times recently. He will be the stability of your times. A wealth of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is his treasure. And I think that's the key. We We can fear the days or we can fear the Lord. Fear the world or fear the Lord. Fear man or fear God. But only Jesus, in all of this, only Jesus is immutable. That is unchangeable. So our confidence in these unstable, unsettling, uncertain times is Jesus. Turn in your Bibles over to Psalm 102 for a moment. Psalm 102. You turn, I'll sip. Psalm 102, verse 25, says... Of old, you founded the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Even they will perish, but you endure. All of them will wear out like a garment, like clothing. You will change them, and they will be changed. But you are the same. And your years will not come to an end. The children of your servants will continue and their descendants will be established before you. You can only be established truly in something that is unchanging. We establish all kinds of things in this world, but things change, and what was established crumbles and falls apart or goes away. We're established in the Lord God who is unchanging, which means as we're established in him, we enter into a secure and stable and unchanging reality. You see, whatever happens to the world, I will always be his. Whatever takes place in my life or in history, I belong to him. I will always belong to him. When the kingdom comes, I'll belong to him. When the kingdom's over and new Jerusalem, new heaven, new earth are are brought to bear, I belong to him. That never changes. I'm established on what is unchanging on the foundation, which is Jesus Christ. But note that in Psalm 102, the children of your servants will continue. He's talking about Israel which is amazing because as you know the story, even though the sons of Israel sinned, and I mean sinned big, not just with the golden calf. We got more to come. They sinned constantly over and over, and yet even though they sinned this way, God's clearly stated and often repeated promises never change like the blueprints of the tabernacle that are given and remain consistent throughout the book, never changing, compare one list to the other, it's exactly the same. So God's promises don't change, they stay the same. In spite of all Israel's sin, God says I'm gonna get you to the promised land and he will and he does. Do they deserve it? No. Do they do anything to earn it? No. Just the opposite, he should have kicked them to the side of the road. But he doesn't. Now understand this that while nothing ever justifies our sin, not even the worst of our rebellions can sway the Lord from his promises. Please get that. Not the worst of our rebellions can sway the Lord from his promises. What he promised he would do, he will do, he will see through. And so without condoning Israel's sin and defiance in any way, we see what one writer called the inflexible determination of God to get the job done. He sets the path and he heads that way and it's going to be completed. It's going to be finished. He will see his will accomplished. Malachi chapter three, verse six, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. (coughs) Excuse me, COVID. No, no, I'm kidding. People are running for the door. I, the Lord, get that. I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, sons of Jacob, Israel, are not consumed. They should be consumed. Their sin is horrific, but I don't change. So you can count on me to see you through. Consecration to the Lord. The confidence we have in the Lord. And finally, with this fourth tabernacle description, we read of construction for the Lord. Construction for the Lord, verse 17. Now in the first month of the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. So note that it's the first month of the second year. They've been out one full year from Egypt and now it's the very first. They're starting the second year. And that's when the tabernacle is built, is put together, all the furnishings brought in, right there at the base of Mount Sinai. Moses erected the tabernacle and laid its sockets and set up its boards and inserted its bars and erected its pillars. He spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent on top of it, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Then he took the testimony and put it into the ark. That's the, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, the law on the stone tablets. Put the testimony into the ark. He attached the poles to the ark. He put the mercy seat on top of the ark. He brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up a veil for the screen and screened off the ark of the testimony just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Then he put the tent in the tent of meeting, or the, the table, sorry, put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle in, outside the veil. So that's the table of showbread. He set the arrangement of bread in order on it before the Lord just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse 24, then he placed the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle. That would be on the left side of the room as you are walking in. And he lighted the lamps before the Lord just as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he placed the gold altar, the altar of incense, in the tent of meeting in front of the veil, and he burned fragrant incense on it, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. And then he set up the veil for the doorway to the tabernacle. This is now the outer veil. He set the altar of burnt offering before the doorway of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and offered on it the burnt offering and the meal offering, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Why not a sin offering? Note the offerings that he offers there. He he gets everything set up. Now, it it needs to be anointed still and, and needs to be kind of set in play, but he's getting it all set up, puts everything where it needs to go, and then he offers a couple of sacrifices. Oh, good, we need some sacrifice, right, for the tabernacle to be effective, and so he sacrifices there. He offers up, verse 29, the burnt offering and the meal offering, which we're gonna look at more specifically in short order when we get into the early chapters of Leviticus. Why not a sin offering? Now, you might want to note this. Think about this with me. He doesn't offer a sin offering because the establishment of the tabernacle has nothing to do with sin. The establishment of the tabernacle has nothing to do with sin. Now, yes, sin will be atoned for at the tabernacle, in the outer courts. With the sacrifice, and sin, sin offerings will be offered daily, morning and evening, on that bronze altar. But the tabernacle was not established related to sin. The primary purpose, listen again, the primary purpose of the tabernacle is devotion to and fellowship with God. Sin is the problem. Sin's what makes devotion and fellowship difficult. So sin is gonna be dealt with. God provides a way for sin to be covered, for sin to be, at least at this time, atoned for, covered over, so that the tabernacle can function in its primary purpose, which is to allow devotion to and fellowship with the Lord. That's why it's there. And we can see with all the offerings and and all the blood and all the things that take place at the altar, sometimes we can say the altar, we get stuck at the altar And we forget about the fellowship. You know people do that with the cross? The cross of Jesus. Some get stuck at the cross and never get to the resurrection. Some churches still have Jesus up on the cross. Not to to diminish the power and the work of the cross in any way, but at the end of his stay on the cross, Jesus said, to tell die, it's finished. And then went on to his burial and resurrection and ascension and the work that he's doing in your life and in mine. The primary purpose of Jesus coming, listen to me, was not the cross. It was that we might have fellowship with God through him. It's that we would be restored in relation. The cross was the way. Just as coming into the tabernacle, gotta go through the altar of incense, gotta have the altar of sacrifice there, first thing. Gotta do that, gotta have sin atoned for. But that's not the primary purpose. The primary purpose is devotion to God and fellowship with God. And so they offer a burnt offering, which is about devotion. You burn up everything on the altar. Everything gets burned up, nothing is left over. It's complete and total devotion to God. That's what the burnt offering conveys. And the meal offering conveys fellowship, just as you would invite someone in for a meal. The meal offering was about fellowship. And that, so we see in these two offerings, the primary reason that the tabernacle is built, fellowship and devotion. Worship, the worship of God. Verse 30 he placed the laver between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing. From it, Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet. That is, they would do so. That's where that's gonna take place. And verse 32, when they entered the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar, they washed just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Again, they're not doing it yet. This is why this is there, though, the explanation of that bronze laver. Verse 33, he erected the court all around the tabernacle and the altar, and hung up the veil for the gateway of the court. Thus, Moses finished the work. Now, we've come to the climactic end of the Exodus, and we can really get started in the teaching for today. (laughs) Consecration, confidence, construction, and finally, cloud. Verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. I just love this. To the Hebrew mind, the word glory expresses God's intangible eminence, his, his transcendence. Glory speaks of something beyond all that we can Think, all that we can understand, all that we can imagine glory, it's kavod in the Hebrew, and it can translate honor or majesty. It can also translate abundance or weight as in substance, the weightiness of his glory, the sheer substance of it. Glory speaks of God's inherent otherness. Glory, honestly, glory is a word we shouldn't use for anybody but God. Because glory only can really be truly expressed in the Lord, nothing else comes close The glory of God. It's the very state of his being. He is glory in and of himself. And this cloud that's seen, by the way, in the last five verses, every verse mentions the cloud. So five times in five verses, the cloud of his glory is mentioned and is seen, and it's a visible manifestation of Yahweh's glory. So again, we have this amazing moment where the spiritual has a physical interaction. Something takes place that is physical and visible because of the presence of God who is spirit. So the cloud of his glory shows up, the people can see this, it's overwhelming, it's amazing. And so we see here in verse 34, what we could call the inhabiting cloud of glory. The inhabiting cloud. This is why the tabernacle is called back in verse one, the dwelling place of the tent of meeting because here he comes. Here comes the cloud of glory, the inhabiting cloud. By the way, it's reminiscent, verse 34 is, of God's descent on Mount Sinai. Back in Exodus 24, verse 15, Moses went up to the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. And the glory of the Lord, note this, rested on Mount Sinai. If you've got your Bible and you can do it real quickly, you might wanna jump back to Exodus 24 and make a note in the margin. This is important, Exodus 24, verse 16, which says the glory of the Lord rested on on Mount Sinai, we blazed right by that when we were studying it just a few weeks back. The word rested is Yishkon. Yishkon is a form of the word Mishkan, which I told you we already used, and it is the dwelling place. Yishkon, rested, is dwelt, and really ought to be translated dwelt, the glory of the Lord dwelt. On Mount Sinai, just as here, the glory of the Lord comes down and fills the tabernacle. What tabernacle? The dwelling place of the tent of meeting because there the Lord would dwell, his glory would arrive. The glory of the Lord filled the Mishkan, the dwelling place. Even as on Mount Sinai, his glory had come down and rested or dwelt on the mountain. And note this, again, back in verse 40, The arrival was sudden. The habitation, if you will, the inhabiting took place quickly. Verse 34 begins, in your Bible, I'm not sure what your translation says, the NESB says, then. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. Well, when we use the word then, we could say, I had breakfast, then I had lunch. And you know I probably didn't have breakfast and immediately go right into lunch, although, could happen. But when we use the word then, we typically think of some kind of span of time. That's not the word that's used there. I mean, it's the closest we can get, but the Hebrew word is va, and it's a conjunction that immediately ties what's happening after the va to what happened before the va, so we ought to read it this way. Thus Moses finished the work. The cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In other words, between Moses finishing the work and the Lord filling the tabernacle, there was no time at all. I get a picture of Moses barely getting out of there when the cloud comes down. When the cloud fills the tabernacle, it's an immediate tying to the previous sentence without almost any pause at all. It's like Moses barely finishes setting things up. Walks out the door and God shows up. The glory comes rushing in. Mottier says it's as though the Lord can't wait to come and live among his people. I think it's the same right now. People say, oh, why is he delaying? I'll tell you what, he can't wait. Jesus can't wait to call us home. The Lord can't wait for all this to be done. He is waiting, why? Because his patience and his compassion and his grace are huge. But as far as he's concerned, he wants you with him. He wants us in fellowship, he wants us close. Just as the glory cloud just arrives. Moses barely out the door. By the way, what happened? 10 days after Jesus ascended, remember he told the apostles, I want you to wait here in Jerusalem until you receive power from on high. And that's all he said, and then he ascended. And as far as they were concerned, well okay, that could be a year or two, so we might as well settle in. 10 days, boom. What happened? Acts chapter two, verse two. Suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. God, true to pattern, as he filled the tabernacle, now he fills the house where the apostles and the disciples are gathered and there appeared to them tongues of fire distributing themselves and they rested on each one of them. There's that word rested as in dwelt. And we're told in verse 16, that Peter said, this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. It shall be in the last days, God says, I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind. And it took 10 days. Why only 10 days? Jesus couldn't wait to get back into his followers. He couldn't wait to come and live. And my friends, now when someone says, I believe that you're the Christ, the son of the living God. When someone gives their life to Jesus, he can't wait to fill them. It's not like there's a 10-day processing period, you know? Well, go ahead and fill in the paperwork as I've been dealing with for two years. Fill in the paperwork. We'll let you know when it's when it's acceptable and when it's all completed. Oh, by the way, there's one more thing you need to do before you can really be considered a follower of Jesus Christ. Go ahead and believe, but make sure you get baptized. Oh, wait, you got baptized, that's great. We need to see if you're faithful. Let's go for another six months and see how your faithfulness works out. And then, and then maybe if you're a good boy or girl, Jesus will fill you. I am so glad that's not how it works. I believe Jesus, I call, I ask, would you be my Lord? Boom, because he can't wait to fill the heart of someone who calls on him in faith. He just can't wait. He inhabits the tabernacle, he fills it so quickly. And by the way, he doesn't just dwell among us, he dwells in us. He fills you, fills me. Same spirit, my friends, as this cloud of glory Verse thirty-five says Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and this is wonderful. This implies that this was a surprise to Moses. What do you mean? Well, he comes out of the tabernacle, the Lord fills it, he can't get back in. Some think he actually tried. We can't say one way or the other, but but clearly Moses realized he couldn't re-enter. The tabernacle, he is stuck. He had always been able to enter the presence of God before, but on this day, and by the way, we'll see the same, same thing happen in Solomon's temple where the priest can't even go in there because the glory of God fills the temple. Same thing now. Moses can't get back in. In fact, it's gonna take the bloody work of the book of Leviticus to spell out all the requirements for entrance into the holy place. We're gonna get all the way to Leviticus chapter 10 before Aaron can enter, before the priest can begin to function in the most holy place. Moses, who had always been able to come before God before, not now, he's blocked, he can't get in. And by the way, apparently, Moses never did Go back in. Hold that thought. Some might say, what? Hang on. Second thing to note here in verse 35, we've seen the inhabiting cloud of glory. This is the restraining cloud of glory. The restraining cloud. He enters, he inhabits, and Moses was not able to enter. You know what that tells us? God alone is in charge of his front door. If God doesn't want you to come visit, you ain't getting in. You can knock all you want, you're not getting inside because God is the one who opens the door. God is the one who invites. And even before this, you might note that Moses never entered the cloud of his glory unless invited, unless God said, okay, Moses, come on in. Exodus 24, 16, again, the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses from the midst of the cloud, and Moses went into the cloud. Gotta have an invitation. Now, back on what I said about Moses not entering, he did enter the courtyard, and he did enter the tent of meeting, but he did not enter into the most holy place. As before, you know, he could go into the tent of meeting, the one set up outside the camp, but in this new tent of meeting is the tabernacle. And while Moses could come into the holy place, he would never go into the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was. He couldn't go in there. We never see him go in there. Numbers chapter seven, verse, I believe it's 89. If it says 29, it's wrong. I think it's 89. Now when Moses went into the tent of meeting to speak with him, he heard the voice speaking to him from above the mercy seat It was on the ark of the testimony from between the two cherubim, so he spoke to him. Moses talked to God. Moses went in to the holy place, and he heard the Lord, but that's as close as we ever get to Moses actually going into the holy of holies. We have nothing that says he went in there. He went in where the altar of incense and the menorah and the table of showbread were. He went in there and he spoke with the Lord and he could hear him through the veil, through the veil. And you know what? Until Jesus came and ripped the veil in two, that's always how you approach God, through the veil. There was always a veil. There was always mediation. There was always a priesthood that you had to go through to get to the Lord. And you had to come by invitation Only. Now, some might say, okay, this idea of a restraining of this cloud of glory, doesn't that fuel the argument of some people that God is distant or indifferent or keeps his people at bay? Understand that this barrier, this restraining of the cloud was protection. This would keep the people and Moses safe from the devastation of his holiness. It intensifies also What ultimately God did, when you think about with the tabernacle and all the requirements, how awesome and holy and powerful and stunning God's presence is and was at that time, it's amazing that then, from there, God put on flesh and came to our house, showed up in this place. He came to dwell among us with no restraint, that people people could see Jesus, and, and touch him, and hear his voice, and, and recognize him, and know him up close and personal, and then God did even more. He, he lifted all restraint through and by the blood of Christ. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, we've read a couple of times in this study, therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a high priest, a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let's hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Now we go in. Now we have unfettered access to the Lord by his spirit through the blood of Christ. And you know what's even better than this? God isn't even waiting for you to come knocking. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Jesus said, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and will dine with him and he with me. This is no longer the restraining cloud of glory. This is now Jesus knocking on your heart and mine. And by the way, that Revelation 3.20 is not an evangelism verse as it's often used. It's not talking about, behold, I stand at the door and knock, that Jesus is knocking on the door of the unbeliever. Now, I believe he is. The Spirit is sent out to search hearts and minds of people to see who who wants to be saved. But he's talking to the church. In fact, he's talking to the church of Laodicea, which I see big time in the world today represented in churches, lackadaisical, straddling the fence, not hot, not cold, just right up the middle. And it's to that church, Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door. knock. I'm knocking. I'm knocking. Will you let me in? I'm knocking. The tabernacle. See, this is like first step to what God ultimately was going to do, knew he was gonna do all along. The tabernacle was established as a place where sinners could have fellowship with a holy God on the basis of atonement. That's where the sacrifices then come into play is it was atonement. God did what needed to be done to cover them so that they could come before him, so that he could be in their midst. And they're gonna need, as I said, the instruction of Leviticus before entrance into the Holy of Holies is even allowed by way of the shed blood. So we see the inhabiting cloud of glory and then suddenly, surprisingly, the restraining cloud of glory. And then number three, the guiding cloud of glory. Verse 36, throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the sons of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out until the day when it was taken up, the guiding cloud of glory. Now, what's cool is the similarity with which God came down and dwelt on Mount Sinai and then came down and dwelt in the tabernacle has led many people to refer to the tabernacle as the portable Sinai. The portable Sinai. It's like Mount Sinai in their midst, that everywhere they went, they could have the experience. So far, they'd just been at the foot of the mountain seeing the glory of God rumble on the mountain, but now he's gonna come down right in their midst and they can travel on and Mount Sinai will be there. The holiness of God will be present. The mountain went with them. It's kind of like going to Disneyland back in the day. When I was a kid, we would drive up from Mission Viejo, South Orange County. We'd drive up to North Orange County, Anaheim area to go to Disneyland. And the first sign that we knew we were close to Disneyland was the Matterhorn. Because on the Southern California skyline, at that point anyway, that's what you saw. Jake's nodding yes. And if you came from the north and came down south, you saw the Matterhorn, there it is, there it is. And as a kid, you know, you just, the rush, whoa. You know, because Disneyland was heaven, even with the cigarette smoke that I referred to before. But we would see, and, but here's the cool thing about it. We'd be in the car and we'd see the Matterhorn. And you know what the Matterhorn did? As you're driving up the freeway, it moved. It's moving. It's, the mountain's moving. That's what we're talking about here. The portable Sinai, that the mountain of God's holiness moved with the people, would travel with the people, would, would literally guide the people. Another moment from Rick's childhood. I just remember prayer time with my father. And I, I think years ago I mentioned this, that We would sit at the breakfast table or the dinner table and typically in my household breakfast and dinner were meals we had together every single day except for Saturday. That's because we were scattered on Saturday but but breakfast we had together and then dinner time and my dad would pray before every single meal and he prayed the same thing over and over. And as a kid I'd be like over there mouthing the words while he was praying it because I knew him so well. you know. Try not to be a smart aleck, but he always closed the prayers exact same way every single time. He would say, and I quote, guide, guard, and direct us in Jesus' name, amen. Guide, guard, and direct us. Guide, guard, and direct. Guide, guard, and direct. I I could just, you know, and Ron and I, every now and then, we just go, hey, guide, guard, and direct. I mean, we just, because we we heard it over and over. And as a kid, I I remember hearing it and and thinking, well, that's cool. And then as I grew older, getting so tired of it, because it's like, Dad, come up with something else. Get a thesaurus, you know, anything, guide, guard. And now, now when I think back on those days, I'm so thankful that he didn't change. I'm so thankful for that prayer because that comes to mind often when I'm praying, Lord, I need you to guide, guard, and direct me. And that's what the Lord does here. That's what verses 36 and 37 are all about, the guiding, guarding, directing cloud of the Lord. If the cloud didn't lift, they didn't break camp. When the cloud stopped, I mean, if the cloud didn't stop, they kept moving until the cloud stopped, until the glory stopped. And then, oh, okay, now make camp. And if they had to stay there a year, they stayed there a year. As long as the cloud was right there over the tabernacle, it wasn't until the cloud itself lifted that then they said, time to break camp. We're going somewhere. Where are we going? I don't know, he knows, ask him. (laughs) We don't know where we're going, but he does and he stayed with them and he walked them through it. And this is what the Shekinah or Shekinah glory, the cloud of glory did. It's the Lord who knew both the way and he knew the when. Psalm 25, verse 4, make me to know your ways, O Lord, and teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation, for you I wait all the day. And my friends, note this, they were not to look for his guidance. They were not to look for it, to demand it. No, they were to wait for it. And they would just wait until the Lord moved. And it's the same principle for us, my friends. God doesn't lead us by the energy of our anxiety. God leads us in the calm of his grace. Lord, we gotta go now. We gotta go now. We'll go when I'm ready. But but but, but Dad, Disneyland's gonna close. We'll go when I'm ready. And we have, this, we have this sense that I gotta craft, it's gotta happen on my timetable. We gotta do this now, Lord, now, now, now. And he's like, wait, wait, wait. And then when he moves out, you know what happens? Peace. When he goes, it's good, it's right. When I rush, I always forget something. There's gonna be an issue, there's gonna be a problem, but God doesn't lead by the energy of our anxiety, but in the calm. Of his grace, what a picture for our lives. This cloud of his glory rises up, we set out. Settles down, we remain. When he goes, we goes. <laughs> when he stays, we stays. That's the deal. And so this cloud of his glory, it inhabits and it restrains to protect and it, and it guides. And finally, number four, and we'll close the book, it abides the abiding cloud of glory, verse 38. For throughout all their journeys, the cloud of Yahweh was on the tabernacle by day and there was fire in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel and underscore throughout all their journeys. The abiding cloud of glory. Psalm 105:39 says, he spread a cloud for a covering and a fire to illumine by night. He gave them shade in the day and light in the night. He gave them air conditioning in the warmth of the day and he gave them warmth in the cool of the night. When it was hot in the daytime and in the cool of the night, glory was there. The glory was there. The tabernacle was built as a, a place for glory, for God's presence to abide, for them to have fellowship with him, to have devotion and worship to him, a place for him to abide among his people. Now, what if they had built the tabernacle and stuck it in the corner of the camp? Or what if they set it up outside the camp like the original tent of meeting? What if they had just left it there at the foot of Mount Sinai? We don't want to mess it up in our journey, so we'll leave it here, and Lord, we'll be back. Oh yeah, we'll be back every Sunday. We'll show up, or or we'll we'll make Mecca, you know. We'll we'll make our our travel back here once a year. We'll come back to the foot of Sinai. We'll worship you, and then we'll go back about our daily lives. Do you give place to His glory in your life? Is the glory of God, the presence of His Spirit, is this something that you think of as? an addition to your home? Is it like a a church property that you can go to that's down the road? Is it maybe a vacation home that you occasion on from time to time? Or is the glory of God central to your life and your devotion? This is what he invites. When he says I want to come dwell with you, he wants to dwell centrally. It's not that he's in, you know, when he talks about we're gonna make our home, Jesus says, in your heart, it doesn't mean that they're in my fleshy heart muscle, he's like, whoa, this is a lot smaller than I thought it was. He makes his home in my spirit. That is in the heart of who I am. Central to my life is the presence of God. And that's what we see in the tabernacle. That's why this is so important and so beautiful as as a picture of my heart is my tabernacle. This is the inner tent. This is where Jesus dwells. Again, not in the pumping, bloody muscle, but in my spirit, man. He is central to my life, to what's going on. He's got me. Is he central to us? Is, is that the measure of our devotion to him, that he is first and foremost? Regardless of anything that else, else that happens around us, he is our focal point. The book of Exodus begins with darkness, darkness of slavery, bondage. It ends with the bright glory of the Lord dwelling among his people. Begins with misery and oppression, but it ends with the cloud of his glory. And you know what's interesting to me is, is the book of Exodus is not unlike, well, history itself. The history of all created things. Genesis chapter one, verse two, the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. That's how it began. How's it gonna end? Matthew twenty-four, twenty-nine. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And Jesus said, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming. How's he coming? On the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. The glory come down. We're gonna see that. We're gonna be in that cloud experiencing that wonder at the end of these things. It's been quite a year. And I'm talking about 2020. It's been a tough year for us all, but the glory cloud is coming. And I'll leave these words of Paul with you this morning, 2 Corinthians 4, 17. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison while we look not at the things which are seen but at the things which are not seen for the things which are seen are temporal but the things which are not seen are eternal let's pray Father I thank you for the consecration of Jesus Christ in our lives. I thank you, Lord, for the devotion that your spirit evokes in us. I thank you, Lord, that you found me in darkness and in oppression and in a state of lostness and you brought me out to freedom in Christ Jesus. I thank you for painting this picture for us so clearly, so beautifully. I thank you, Father, that your word continues to repeat again and again the same truth of your deep love and devotion to us. And truly it is said, Father, that we are devoted to the one who is devoted to us, first devoted to us, Proven in your blood, Lord Jesus. And so this morning we thank you. We thank you for the Shemot. We thank you for Exodus. We thank you for the stories and the teachings and the comprehension and the understanding. I pray now, Father, that this book would not remain closed to us. We might return again and again as we continue to walk with you as the cloud of your glory continues with us all along this journey. I thank you, Father, for what is to come, whether it's the book of Leviticus or our calling home. Father, I ask this morning simply that you would continue to move among your people. Father, I pray for the church that we would, in this camp, recognize that you are central to all things, that even in the outskirts of the camp of the church that all eyes would be fixed on Jesus Christ the light of the glory of God. And I pray, Father, for each of us that we, kind of like Joshua, we want to be as close as possible, never leaving the tent of meeting, never departing from your dwelling, desiring always to be with you. And Father, there's there's a work that you're doing here in the church and among believers, and it's a stirring up. I mean, there's a a lot of things shaken loose, and, and we recognize that, I pray, Father, when it's all said and done, you would just shake the chaff of sin and rebellion off of our hearts and draw us near to you as pure and spotless, a pure and spotless bride. And we praise you. We love you, Lord. And we give our lives to you and ask, Lord, that you would guide, guard, and direct us in Jesus' name, amen.